does have it all. All of our pre-owned vehicles are Hubler Q certified, which include a 128-point vehicle inspection, a free Carfax vehicle history report, and two warranties. A two-year, 100,000-mile powertrain warranty and a 30-day, 1,000-mile comprehensive warranty. Visit any of our 13 locations today or click drivehubler.com. Alex Golden, host setting the pace, covering the Pacers throughout the year. Always good to get his perspective on things. Alex, I want to get your thoughts on how the lottery shaped up. And I know you were tweeting through it like I was. Uh, Could have been worse. Not the outcome that Pacers fans wanted. But, hey, we're not Detroit, right? we got that going for us. (laughs) Yeah, that's a great thing. I mean, obviously, any any chance you can get to move up, it's it's what you want. But... They didn't fall back. They get the Rockets pick at 32, and, you know, nobody jumped them. So that was that was really nice. And like you said, Detroit falling to five was actually a blessing in disguise for the Pacers, too, because it keeps Victor Wimbanyama out of the Central Division. So I, I think, honestly, it was probably like middle of the pack what you wanted to happen. But, you know, it wasn't the worst thing, wasn't the best thing. But I think that I, I can live with the results that, that came with it because I, I think seven's a good spot to be in. Alex and hearing some of, there we go. Alex and hearing some of the reaction about the guys, the talent, the prospects that will be available at that seventh pick. It seems like that the it's kind of broken into three tiers of where those guys are within those first few picks. And looking at your recap of a lot of the mock drafts and compiling what the voices across the NBA are saying. What are the likely selections, the options that would be available for Indiana at seven, and which among those do you feel like is the best pick and selection for fit of what the guys are doing, what the Pacers are doing right now? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think if you look at the top three, it's Victor Wimbenyama, Scoot Henderson, and Brandon Miller from Alabama. And then a lot of people have already slotted Amen Thompson in there at number four. So it's been kind of jumbled up between five and eight, and that's where you've got Cam Whitmore, Asore Thompson, uh, Taylor Hendricks, and Jarris Walker. And Anthony Black's been in that mix as, too, uh, as well. But I don't really think Anthony Black makes a lot of sense for the Pacers because he is a primary ball handler, and the Pacers already have that. So the first four that I mentioned, I think you can make a case for each and every one of them. I think Cam Whitmore might have the highest potential of all of them which does get me excited. But if you watch his game, he does have a lot of similarities to Benedict Matherin. So I think he's got a better defensive upside to him, but that does make me a little bit you know, curious that that might be too redundant if they're the same type of player. Um, I think a lot of Pacer fans, I put a poll out yesterday, they are very excited about the idea of Jairus Walker here because a really good defender. I think he's got the highest floor coming into the draft of these four players just because – He's going to be good. I just don't know how good he's going to be. Is he going to be a role player, or does he have the the chance to be be an all-star? And offensively, I don't think he's got that in his game. But someone like Taylor Hendricks from UCF is probably the player that stands out to me the most because he's 6'9", over a 7-foot wingspan. He can shoot the ball, 40% three-point shooter in college last year, as the best player on UCF and he averaged 15 points a game last year. I think that he's still quite a, you know, got a ways to go. He's pretty raw, but as an overall talent, I think that he could fit in seamlessly with the Pacers with what they need, and I think he's just got a little bit of a higher ceiling than someone like Jairus Walker. Alex Golden of Setting the Pace joins us here on the Fan Midday Show. You can follow him on Twitter at AlexGoldenNBA. When you look at the depth that's present in this draft, obviously there's only one generational sure thing, it would appear anyway, going into the NBA draft next month in Victor Wembanyama. When you look at what else is present and the amount of picks the Pacers have at their disposal, is there enough assets in the treasure chest without breaking the bank for them to move up to the inside the top five if they wanted to? That's a great question, and I honestly don't feel like there is a path for them to really get up there because, to me, I'm not trading away a bunch of stuff to get into four or five range. If you could get into the top three, like Portland, another they're a team that's been rumored to be looking to move that. They want win now players. Well. The most win-now-ready players for the Pacers are Miles Turner and Tyrese Halliburton. Obviously, we know Halliburton's not going anywhere. Could Miles be on the move? I mean, I, I don't really think that that's going to be enough. Miles plus seven to move up to three, I, I just don't see it. So now you're talking future assets or you're talking someone like Andrew Nimhart and potentially even Benedict Mathern just to get conversation started, which to me is a no-starter. So at that point, I don't want to get my hopes up too high for that, but – 
if the Pacers were able to get involved in like a three-team deal type thing and maybe try to sneak in there, I, that could be something of interest. But I think it's just going to be very difficult for the Pacers to provide win-now players for Portland to get up into that top three. And that's the only reason I would really consider moving up at this point. Looking at the guys who the Pacers have returning, the pillars that they are building around, and then looking at the position they are in within the draft and then another season under Rick Carlisle, how close are the Pacers with what you expect them to do or what you would suggest that they do this offseason to getting back into playoff contention? We know this last year was somewhat of a, not to overuse the term rebuild, but that was what you expected it to be. But how quickly can they put themselves in a position to be contending for the division, to be contending for a playoff spot, looking to the vision of 2023? Yeah, I think as long as the Eastern Conference has Giannis Antetokounmpo <laughs> in it, the Pacers are not winning the Central Division. I mean, he's just that great of a player. And then I think there's still a few notches away from where, where Cleveland's at. But I, I do think that they're not they're not too far out from being a playoff contending team. I think they have a chance to make the top six and We'll see what happens with the, uh, the rest of the Eastern Conference because there are a lot of question marks there. So to me, I think based on the production we saw last year, the way that these guys overachieved and played up to their level of competition in that stretch during late November and all December and before Halliburton got injured, they were on pace to make the playoffs. So I, I think that they're there, but I, I think at the same point, they're not ready to contend for a title yet. Maybe compete in a first-round playoff series and then maybe win one. So I think right now that the smartest thing to do is just continue to build within. Don't try to go go crazy this summer and make a bunch of all-in moves right now. Maybe if you make a big move for one, that makes sense. But going all-in and trading a bunch of future assets, I don't think that's the smart play right now because I think it's going to take a few years for Benedict Mather and Nimhard, your draft pick this year, Tyrese Halliburton, to really gel and mesh together. But I think getting them playoff experience next year would be huge. And I think they have – the pieces right now to do it. You add a few in the offseason via the draft and free agency. I think that they can get into the playoffs once again. So what would your command be to Pacers fans in terms of the expectation and maybe the, the degree of patience that they should have with building within the group that they have and what this unit can do maybe this season and then over the next, say, two and three seasons? Yeah, I would say just be patient and let these guys develop and enjoy the growth because Benedict Matherin had a terrific rookie season, made all-rookie first team. I think Andrew Nimhard was deserving of the second team at minimum. I mean, we saw what he can do defensively. I think that you feel very confident with Tyrese Halliburton and what he can do, and he's still just scratching the surface. He's 23 years old, and most players don't enter their prime until around age 27. So I would say give it a few years, see what the Pacers can do, and, and just root for good basketball because I think we, we got a taste of that this year. It just wasn't. Uh, consistently long enough for them to really feel like it could benefit them and get them into the playoffs. But I think that if you can just be patient, let them grow, and let them get that playoff experience, just stay patient and and stay the course because we've seen it before. When they try to do this, you know, build this team that's a tough out, that fans were getting tired of that, and, and they weren't able to move off the first round of the playoffs. So I think getting Tyrese in there with some players around him uh, would be the smart thing to do. And, and fans just need to realize, hey, we're in a good spot. Let's not rush this thing, and let's not get impatient. Alex Golden of Setting the Pace here with us on The Fan. You know, Alex, one of the most perplexing, and there were a ton, but one of the most perplexing things of the brief Nate Bjorkman era was Dan Burke being shown the door after more than 20 years of service with the Pacers. And you brought this up on Twitter the day Doc Rivers got let go earlier this week uh, of just, you know, probably hopeful analysis of, man, this defense has struggled. Dan Burke is a defensive mind. Maybe if there was a pathway and the Pacers were on board with it, they could bring him back. Obviously, the Pacers would have to make space for him, and then Philadelphia would have to let him go. Is there a real possibility to that, or is that just wishful thinking on both our parts that that could happen? Oh, it's definitely wishful thinking for me. I have no inside sources on Dan Burke and what his contract is or anything like that, but you know, you do see a lot of shuffling go on when there are coaching changes made. And if Doc Rivers gets a job somewhere else, maybe Dan Burke follows him. But we know Dan Burke was very loyal to the Indiana Pacers organization, and we do know that him and Rick Carlisle were both assistants when Larry Bird was the head coach here at one time. And I think when Carlisle was the coach, obviously, uh, Bert, uh, Dan Burke was his assistant as well. So there is familiarity there. 
the Pacers do have a very strong coaching staff, and I don't know if they really need to add another voice to it, but I just feel like Dan Burke's defense, we saw the highs of it, and the Pacers were the number one team in the league a couple of different times with Dan Burke kind of running and anchoring that defense. And I just think that because of the defensive struggles, it would not hurt to get another defensive voice in there. But at the same time, I think this was a Kevin Pritchard decision, and it wasn't really a Nate Bjorken decision. Mm. So I think that's where there could be a little bit of a tie-up there. But I think that we've kind of seen how Carlisle has been able to impact things maybe before that you know weren't going to be able to happen. So I think that Carlisle's voice is just a lot stronger in that, that front office and that locker room. So that's the only reason I thought about it. But I just think Dan Burke's a very – under underrated coach and people realized how much they missed him once he was gone. Speaking of the prominence of this Pacers defense of the past, I saw that you retweeted something from the Pacers earlier today. It was 10 years ago, the Roy Hibbert block on on Carmelo Anthony that you mentioned, maybe the most impactful block in Pacers history. You say, can't think of another block that stands out as much from the postseason. Roy Hibbert's performance, 21 points, 12 rebounds, 5 blocks, most notably that one at the end of the game. Do we give enough respect and acknowledgement for Roy Hibbert and the career that he had? And should that moment be more highly regarded in terms of the impact that it had? That's a great question. Yeah, I think I think Roy in the moment, you know, he had two all-star seasons and the, the rule of verticality really did benefit Roy Hibbert because I just feel like in today's NBA, there's no chance Roy could make it out there just because of being able to switch everything. But in that time, he was he was really a great player, and I think that he stepped up to the challenge and, and really became that anchor for us. And the year after that, when they brought in Andrew Bynum and stuff like that happened, it really did mess with him mentally. So I, I really hate that. I hated that for him in the moment because you could see he was just not in a groove, and we saw the Atlanta Hawks just kind of uh, – show us a preview of what the league might look like when you can have a center step out and shoot threes when they have Pero Antich out there, which people probably forget about him. But, uh, you know, he gave Roy Hibbert a bad name in that series when the Hawks took us to seven in the first round. But, no, I think that block by Roy Hibbert, uh, I did get a lot of replies back saying, no, the most impactful block in Pacers playoff history was Reggie Miller getting blocked by Tayshawn, but we don't want to talk about that. That's just positive stuff here. So that's where I was like, I'm, I'm talking positive things. I just think Roy Hibbert, was such a big part of the NBA at that point that they kind of had to change the rules because of some of the stuff he was able to do. So uh, he does not get as much love as he deserves, I don't think. Positive vibes only. I like it, Alex. Always appreciate yeah. you making time for us. I know you're going to be covering it throughout the off season, but anything particular on setting the pace we need to watch out for in the coming weeks? Yeah, I, would, I will say this. Uh, Sunday we are scheduled to have Pacers GM Chad Buchanan on the show, so that'll be good. Uh, if you're interested in hearing what he has to say now that we know where the Pacers are drafting. Obviously, Kevin Pritchard has talked openly about it, but I enjoy hearing Chad's perspective as well. Um, They're both on the same page, but it's cool to be able to talk with Chad about things and maybe ask him some questions that haven't been brought up. And then we'll have a mock draft uh, coming out tonight, and tomorrow it'll be a two-part episode because we're going to do 32 picks with that. So if you're interested in mock drafts and seeing what some experts think, we got a couple guys coming on that cover the draft regularly to help us with this. So That'll be some fun content. But thank you all for having me on. I really appreciate it. Of course. Thank you, Alex. Yes, sir. You can follow him on Twitter at AlexGoldenNBA and can find all that coverage in the lead up to the draft from Setting the Pace wherever you get your podcast. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Rolling along on a Thursday on the Fan Midday Show. Here from the DriveHubert.com studios. Jimmy Cook and Lara Overton. Eddie Garrison along with us as well. Our next guest you know as a content producer and Colts beat writer on 107.5thefan.com as well as the co-host 7 to 10 a.m. of Kevin and Query. He is one Kevin Bowen. KB, I gotta admit, I know I'm going to be out there on Friday. But I'm jealous. I see the videos on Twitter. You're you're taking in a, a picturesque day over there at IMS, and we've lost you, but that's okay. We'll get you here in a second. Kevin Bowen did just tweet out a video a couple of seconds ago. I'm going to find it now. I haven't and, seen and, this. And, 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 and you got the, the cars racing by. You got a great crowd there. 
at IMS and from just a weather and overall condition standpoint, I understand if anybody's listening, that is it all tied to any of the different teams out at IMS. I'm knocking on wood right now to offset this, but (laughs) two great weather days so far in terms of uh, where things are at right now. Earlier in the week, it was a little bit, you know, it was a little difficult. It was just uh, those showers in the afternoon, which really spoiled things earlier on. So good to see they're able to well make up for that uh, with the conditions that we have today. And it looks like that we do have our Kevin Bowen now joining us. KB is here. Kevin, I'm going to blame it on how fast the cars were moving. Just totally took out the connection there. How's IMS today? Yeah, gosh, I don't know what the deal was. I'm actually just leaving Ah. the track right now. So I don't know if I had a little dead zone at like 30th and Cold Spring (laughs) or what. So apologies on that front from myself. I hope you went ahead and reported that outage. You know, it's going to be pretty busy around there the next couple of weeks. You want to make sure there's no (laughs) no dead spots for uh, for anybody trying to try to make those type of calls across the board, even if they're not radio hits. You know what I mean? Yeah, thirty of the cold spring a week from Sunday is probably the place probably the last place you want to be leaving leaving the track at about whatever, three, four o'clock next Sunday. Kev, we're obviously gonna dive into a lot of Colts, but what was it like to be able to take in the speedway once again? And I, I know that you were as excited as I am to be able to be back out there for a carb day on Friday with, with our host of shows. Yeah, I mean obviously it's a postcard day here in Indy. Um any time that you're out there, I, I really enjoyed today it looked like and I'm sure it's like this kinda of everyday out there, but tons of school kids running around there and I think it's just an awesome experience for them to get, you know, potentially their first taste of what it's like and you know, for me, this is much more of a fan event, and, and I don't obviously our station is the fan, but like purely as me sitting in the stands and taking it in and not necessarily you know, writing or doing, you know, a ton of radio around it. Obviously, our show contributes a huge chunk each day. And like you said, Jimmy, we'll be out there for Carb Day. So it was awesome, man. Um, just to sit in the stands for about an hour or so and watch cars turn laps. And you're kind of looking at these paint schemes. You're like, oh, boy, that one really stands out. That one I really like. So awesome, awesome day to head out there. So if people uh, can get a chance this afternoon, uh, I'd say head over 16th of Georgetown. KB, I'll get to Colt's question, but very quickly, I want to get in since you mentioned, you know, you got the field trips going on or you're seeing all the kids out there for the practice days. I know a few friends of mine who let the kids like play hooky for the afternoon and they've been out there watching practice. What is the youngest age that you would be willing to take, you know, Rosie Bowen and young Max out there to have their introduction to IMS? Well, that is a great, great question. So last year, um, and by the way, great to hear your voice, Lara. Um, (laughs) Last year, I took Rosie, and she would have been what? She'll be three next month. She would have almost been two. I took her to qualifying day. A lot of trips to the old uh, French fry and and, and hamburger concession area. Um, We did catch, you know, purple car and the pink car were our favorites. So, Elio and and Simon Pagino have that paint scheme. Kyle Kirkwood, I think, will be a favorite this year as well. Uh, she actually did pretty well, all things considered. It was it was calls, I guess, it was the fast twelve uh, last year on that Sunday. So that's going to be the goal again. We're gonna we're gonna take Rosie Bell out there. I, I showed her the tickets yesterday. She was thrilled about it. Uh, we'll see how long that she makes it there. But I would say right around, you know, kind of you know approaching two, three. If you're prepared to make a lot of trips to concession stands, I think you can do it. <laughs> I love it. Now. Switching to, you know, my favorite topic to talk with you about and one that we are fortunate to talk about pretty often, whether it's media room or out on the practice field or on game days. But hearing from Gardner Minshew yesterday, biggest takeaways in terms of how he is embracing now being a part of the Indianapolis Colts and whatever his role might be with this offense as they move into 2023. Well, I'd say first off, just what a great personality. I mean, I I, I just... I couldn't stop asking questions yesterday just because I felt like he was you know, such an open book and, and has he just seems like a chill dude. And dude, you love to throw a cold one. Honestly, a guy that I'd love to be in the infield with over at uh, <laughs> over at IMS. But you know, I, I felt this way when they signed him from afar, Lara. And like, you know what? I feel like he is kind of the perfect makeup for what you would want in a backup bridge quarterback. However, you want to define it. And, like, he just strikes me as a pretty low-maintenance, go-with-the-flow type of guy. But at the same time, I don't want to seem like he's, like, lethargic or, you know, something like that. I mean, clearly, if Shane Steichen holds you in high quarterback regard, that means something to me. And, you know, he started multiple games for Steichen as the play caller, beat the last two years with Philly, and then 
obviously Shane thought highly enough of him to bring him here and hold a really valuable role, whether that is, again, as that bridge guy or as that backup. Um, you know, he started 12 games as a rookie. That was a question that I tossed this way yesterday. Like, that's, I mean, 12 games as a rookie obviously is a huge number, especially when he was not expected to be the starter for Jacksonville. So I think that aspect will help Anthony Richardson. And then just the fact that they know each other. You know, I, just trying to picture you know, Richardson coming back in the building this week and the fact that he has worked out before with, with Gardner, I, I would think from a, a relationship standpoint, an icebreaker standpoint, those sorts of things, he kind of already got that out of the way, uh, given the fact that they did work out. Uh, not a whole lot, but certainly a couple times uh, back in the spring. Kev, was that knowledge that you had already had? Because maybe I had forgotten it, but that was surprising. And he obviously talked about a little bit later what it does to be able to have a previous relationship with an incoming rookie. But was was that surprising to you to know that Anthony Richardson and Minshew had had time together already, uh, having the same quarterback coach that you mentioned in Florida? And if it wasn't, and you already knew that, from your perspective and as you evaluate this team, he stressed the need for unity within that quarterback room and not having me guys there but having an entire room that is focused on the same goal how important is that entire mixture for this quarterback room yeah I think it's vital I mean I guess there's no way for me to say this without being a shot at Carson Wentz but you know I've heard a lot of people kind of debate hey will Carson Wentz ever come back in the NFL will he play again this or that and me just speaking from what I would want if I were running a team I would not want Carson Wentz as my backup just because I think there is a lot of kind of volatility to maybe not necessarily him as a person all the way, but just the storyline with him. And I hope that makes sense. Like, you know, like Johnny Manziel, if you were to bring him in as your backup, oh my gosh, could you imagine just like, again, from a volatility storyline standpoint, you know, I get, I get that Wentz isn't in the same boat, but it, it is kind of similar to me. Whereas, whereas uh, Minshew, it's like, Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, according to Matty Bowen, he's the hot dude with the mustache. Like, I mean, that's that's like it with them, you know, which I think is like the perfect sort of background that you would want. And then on top of that, again, he's got this psychic experience. Um, I, I did know that him and Richardson had worked out. I, ironically enough, it, you know, Gardner was the one that yesterday he mentioned, you know, back when they started working out together, there was part of them that was like, wow, uh, this could be my future teammate. You know, Gardner started to kind of connect all the dots of, you know, I would love to play for Shane. The Colts have the fourth overall pick. You know, I'm not stupid. I know how the, how all this works. This could happen. And obviously it came to fruition there. We had Will Hewitt, uh, the quarterback's coach, uh, back on our show a couple of weeks ago, mainly to talk about Richardson, but he brought up Gardner Minshew as well. So, again, I think from a, you know, Drew Stanton, Matt Hasselbeck, a tandem for, you know, Andrew Lux, that early part of his career. I think that was just really important for, for Luck. And, and in a way, Richardson, you know, it probably matters a little bit more who his backup is because he just has such of a lack of experience entering the league. KB, the Colts have a few more weeks here of the entirety off-season program, which includes that big veteran mini camp that they will do in June before departing and then returning at the end of July for training camp and everyone getting back together. What are the areas where you think are most critical for the Colts to establish and for Shane Steichen to establish to integrate in that period of time so that when they come in at the end of July, you're ready to be in position to do the things that you need to do and that are essential to do to start the season in the fashion that you envision? Yeah, I think something I'll certainly be curious about over the next month is do you see one of those kind of late spring veteran signings? Uh, even dating back to the Ryan Grigson era, I think of Mike Adams as kind of the poster child for that. But, um, you know, you have these guys that typically are kind of holding out, waiting out, and, and you brought up the three-day minicamp, Larry. You know, sometimes you just wait for that three-day minicamp, sign a guy who's been in the league for quite a while, and then he's going to be in competition to – win a starting job. So you know, do you go down that path at any position? Is that right guard? Is that corner? Is that safety? Uh, I think that's something to keep an eye on. You know, obviously on field, the biggest one is just what do you do at quarterback in terms of reps? You know, when you think about the three minicamp practices and the 10 OTAs, that's 13 practices they're going to have over the month. I mean, that's, that's a lot of time on the practice field. I mean, when you think of training camp, I get that it's full pads during training camp, but you know, training camp's what? 16, 17 practices. So 
this is a, a really important time to, I think, make a strong impression on the coaching staff, and then potentially that will influence how those early days at Grand Park go. So, so how do you divide up the reps between Minshew and Richardson? I assume Minshew would take the, the big-time bulk of that, but you know, we had Joel Erickson on our show earlier today, and he said he felt like you know, Richardson could take a third of the starting reps. To me, that's kind of a high number. Um, I, I, I'm good with it, but just guessing how the Colts would handle things right now, I don't know. That seems like kind of a high number here in the spring. Uh, and then lastly, just like do any rookies make an impression or two? You know, when you look at the cornerback group, they drafted three corners. Juju Brent's the kid out of Warren Central. He's not full go here in the spring coming off the wrist injury. So if you're Darius Rush, a fifth-round corner out of South Carolina, what a great opportunity to have 13 practices that your fellow draft mate will not get. Now, I'm not saying that to act like Juju Brent all of a sudden won't be able to earn a starting job. He certainly will have that chance. But, you know, if you can all of a sudden take full advantage of having more than a dozen times on the practice field with veterans and rookies mixed together, it's a great opportunity at what I would say is a really wide-open position group in, uh, in, in corner. Kevin Bone with us here on the Fan Midday Show. You hear him on Kevin and Query 7-10 to 10 throughout the week. KB, to that end about the corners, Larry and I were discussing this earlier. I know the question is half answered in how they attacked the cornerback position in this draft, but when you look at Gilmore being gone and you look at contract years for Kenny Moore and Isaiah Rogers, how imperative is the learning curve to be kind of jumped to some extent with some of the corners they drafted and how much measurement is going to be from the scouting department and from Steichen and Gus Bradley where this cornerback room is from week one to the end of the season when they have to make tough decisions on if they're going to bring any of more Rodgers back. Yeah, that's such an uncertain position group, not only in 2023, but to your point, Jimmy, you know, beyond when you bring up the contract gears for Rodgers and more. I'd also point out with Rodgers, I think we saw it at times early last season, certainly a favoritism from Gus Bradley to play Brandon Faceton. I mean, Gus Bradley likes corners that are tall and long, and that's not Isaiah Rodgers. He's not 5'8", but he's not 6'1", 6'2", either, like some of those other guys are that they just drafted. So, you know, naturally, you're going to have a bit of a turnover of a roster in terms of skill set and, and, you know, size that you like. Now, I think Rodgers is quite good enough football that he deserves a great opportunity. So I'll be interested to see how that one plays out. But I mean, they, they lost so much at corner. Um, they have some young guys there. You know, Jimmy, I, I'm kind of in this boat at corner and safety right now where I'm good with the youth movement. Now, I'm not good with the youth movement at every single position group, but for the secondary and I guess the defense in general – I'm okay with it. You know, where I'm not necessarily okay with it is, again, at like a position of like right guard where, you know, in Will Fries, I mean, he's a seventh-round pick. I don't think you just sharpie him in into the starting lineup. Um, I think that's something that you still look for a veteran. The depth on the offensive line has really very little proven depth at all, uh, if you even want to call it depth. And we saw how that group, you know, had some issues last season. And, and where I think you have to realize, okay, youth movement, okay on defense, not okay on offense. For me, the support of Anthony Richardson has got to be paramount whenever you hand him the keys to the car. So that is an area where I would like to see a little bit more free agency attention. And there are some names out there that you could go down that, that path because um, you don't want to break your rookie quarterback from an offensive line standpoint or just anywhere offensively for that matter. Uh, so I think it's vital to try and make sure that you bolster – those areas around him. KB, in having a few weeks now to to see Shane Steichen at work with this group as an entirety, not even just the offense, hear from him, hear from the players, hear from the coordinators and the assistant coaches from the outside. I mean, I see the differences that he's making internally and what he has done to certainly take his identity and impress it upon this group. But from your perspective, where do you see Shane kind of putting his fingerprints on the mentality of this team and how he wants this team to conduct himself, even though maybe we haven't seen an entirety of, okay, this is what the offense looks like, but more so in terms of his philosophy, where are you seeing that impact the most? Yeah, that's a good question, Larry. It almost seems like he has the mentality 
of like, or at least I think I would kind of feed into the mentality of this dude is so freaking smart. How do you not want to follow him? <laughs> like, we're just going to have a schematic advantage to steal a phrase that Charlie Weiss used to use in Notre Dame, which obviously blew up his face, but neither here nor there. Uh, I just feel like the Colts are going to have an advantage offensively, or at least players are going to buy into that, which I think is, is important. And, and, you know, Frank Reich obviously um, had some very strong uh, moments and stretches as an offensive coach as well. Uh, but I think what, what, what impressed me about Sykin, and I would throw the whole offensive staff into this boat, they are very young, very inexperienced. But is there one thing that you can kind of point to is they all have a bit of a modern background to the, to the game. You know, when you think about the NFL game, it's, it's changed a bit, particularly on offense, particularly the style of quarterbacks. Anthony Richardson is not Peyton Manning from a stylistic standpoint. So are you open-minded to that? Well, their quarterback's coach has worked with Cam Newton and Kyler Murray. Um, they have two offensive assistants that came from the Giants from last year. Well, anyone who watched the Giants last year, they were one of the more dual-threat quarterback, run-game-centric offenses, an, an offense that has very little talent at receiver, tight end, and I would say even quarterback as well. But, yeah, they got a lot out of their group. And then Tom Manning at tight ends coach, and he was an offensive coordinator in college for Brock Purdy. So those are just some interesting sort of backgrounds offensively that Shane Sykin has surrounded himself with. And, again, I think it kind of caters to being open-minded to, okay, what does Anthony Richardson do well? You know, how can we cater the offense to him? So I think just in general from a team standpoint, it'll be more kind of on the brainiac side of things of the belief and the all-ball sort of aspect that we are used to with Sykin so far. Uh, but then from an offensive standpoint, I do think it's a staff that has a lot of unique backgrounds, which I think is important to try and kind of building an offense that probably has to look a little bit more kind of Saturday-like uh, at times with Anthony Richardson. Kevin Bowen with us here on the Fan Midday Show. A couple days ago, Kev, you wrote on 107.5thefan.com about where Bernard Ryman is at in terms of just the weight that he's put on and the expectations that are around him. There's already going to be so much pressure on this offensive line to have a bounce back year, not just because it impacts what either quarterback Richardson or Minshew will do under center, but also what it opens up for Jonathan Taylor as he looks to return to form in his own right. When you look individually at Bernard Ryman and the expectations that are on him, but also how he's approached the offseason at this point, what have been your takeaways? Well, I, I guess I'll start here, Jimmy. I think Bernard Ryman, you can make a very strong case he's the most important Colts player uh, here in 2023. Um, not only because the position he plays is vitally important, but if he screws up or doesn't do well, that could obviously impact how Anthony Richardson grows here in year one, which is the biggest storyline in year one of, of, of just Richardson's individual growth. Uh, you know, obviously, what, what stands out to you the most is the weight gain, and Chris Ballard you know, said that at the end of the year. Ryman's got to get stronger. Remember his background. I mean, it was a Vienna Vikings wide receiver turned you know, tight end at Central Michigan offensive tackle just for two years so you know he's had this slow kind of weight gain and I think yeah he was 300 pounds last year but there were times where where kind of power got the best of him so you know gaining the 15 to 20 pounds like you mentioned was step one and I think Jeff Saturday deserves some credit for this you know there was a lot of fluctuation with the offensive line obviously Saturday opted for more of a veteran quarterback when he first came on and took the job here but he stuck with a rookie at left tackle. And I do think amidst all the dumpster fire that was going on over the last two months, if there was a bright spot, it was Bernard Ryman, you know, making some strides as a rookie. So uh, he is just so critical to not only this season, but moving forward. Because, you know, when you think about the most important position in sports, or in football, I should say, left tackle is high on that list. And if you're able to cross that off with a third-round draft pick for the next couple of years on that rookie deal, that's huge in terms of not having to worry about that position, not trying, to, not needing to invest with other major resources. So I think for all those reasons, uh, really big for Ryman. But you know, whether it was with us last Friday, Lair, I know he's been on with, with with you guys and Matt. I mean, he just has such an unbelievable spirit about him, and the work ethic is through the roof. And I think those are all important qualities to have because you knew some work was needed when he came out of college. He, he, I thought he had a nice progression from a really poor start in Denver on that Thursday night. 
And now if he can take a big jump in year two, that would do wonders for the future of this football team. No doubt, for sure, KB. Awesome to get to talk to you, and we're kind of trading places. I'm I'm in here, and where you're usually sitting, you're out there. So fun to be in the big chair uh, this afternoon, and always good to get to catch up with you outside of just you know our media room banter. Well, are you well? The, I mean, honestly, the biggest chair would be Jake's chair because the ego's got to fit into that chair. So are you in that one? Or you <laughs> I think the- I am in Jake's chair. I know. Okay. All right. Yeah, those are some big shoes to fill. So I hope hopefully the hot air isn't getting to you too much there. But always enjoy talking with you. Jimmy, do we have a preakness pick? Not yet. I'll have one tomorrow. I do have one question out of you, though, not Colts related. Um, yeah. I mentioned this to you last week. I'm going to Great American for the first time as an adult. Yankees are in town, cards on the table. But I've asked Eddie about this. Want to get your thoughts. Any guidance, good eats, stuff I should do before the game. Any Any advice in that regard? Well, I had my bachelor party in Cincinnati, so maybe we should talk offline. (laughs) I would say say the area right around the stadium is is tremendous, and assuming the weather is going to cooperate, that is an absolute must. I enjoyed the the Rheingeist. That that was a great spot. It's not necessarily in that general range, but if you want to venture up into that area, uh, it's a great time as well. So if you're looking for a little bit like – I don't know, not necessarily higher end, but I would say kind of that Newport side of things, a little bit kind of like a nicer restaurant feel, which is around the ballpark. You have a little bit of that, but you also can get a tin roof scene or something along sure. those lines there. But I would say the uh, the ballpark area is so great. I mean, we're fortunate here in like this market where all of our stadiums are so centrally located. Obviously, Cincinnati's got that with, with, with both of theirs. So take full advantage of everything down there on the water. It's very helpful. I appreciate you as always, KB. Uh, yes, I would say good luck to your Yankees, but I do not mean that. I, I know, <laughs> and I would say the same about the Reds, but I wouldn't mean it in this case either. <laughs> Thanks, Kevin. <laughs> See you guys. Have a great weekend. <laughs> it's Kevin Bowen, our very own. You can hear him 7 to 10 on Kevin and Query, and of course does a fantastic job covering the Colts on 107.5thefan.com. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Welcome back to the Fan Midday Show. With Larry Overton, I'm Jimmy Cook. Eddie Garrison with us as well. Colts off-season activities, workouts, the whole nine in full swing for the Indianapolis Colts, and nice enough to take some time with us today is Colts defensive end Quiddy Pay. Quiddy, thanks so much for making the time as always, and, and how things go out there today? Things are going pretty good. Thank you for having me. Of course. Very happy to have you along. Quiddy, I usually just get to grab you in the hallway and have these conversations, but it's fun to get to have you on the radio and get to talk to you to a greater mass audience this afternoon. And one of the things that we've talked about is the continuity among the defense, having so many veterans returning and also being able to enjoy a second season under Gus Bradley. And I know it's never fair to really compare one season to the next, but with this being the second year that you guys will be able to have under Gus, how far ahead do you guys feel as a defense as opposed to this time last year when you guys were still installing this defense? I think I think we're way ahead now. Um, you know, as that's Going into the year two in this defense, you know, just having the younger guys, uh, we're kind of teaching them along the way and just showing them, you know, how it looks and watching other defenses that have similar fronts to us and, you know, this this, uh, similar mindset. So it's it's way easier this time around. Quiddy, when you look back at everything that you had to learn and grasp as a rookie and then you look at this year's rookie class, what, if any, advice have you passed along and and how hard is it for a rookie to immediately grasp the pace of things and how the day-to-day changes once you've made it to the NFL? I think for me, um, something that, you know, even Coach Nate speaks about, like, I don't really remember a lot of my good plays, but if he pulls up a bad play, I'll know exactly what I messed up on and how I could fix it, you know. So really, you know, just not sticking on, you know, all the good stuff that you do because in reality, like, you do it well. But the bad stuff is, you know, how teams take advantage of, you know, your mistakes or whatever. So, you know, you just want to eliminate that. And if you can do that, have as uh, the the least amount of mistakes as possible, then, then you'll be good in this league, so... 
One of the rookies most pertinent in terms of your position group, defensive tackle Aditamiwa Adabare. He has a lot of versatility, but kind of prides himself on the skill set that he has as a three-tech. What have his impressions, immediate impressions, been upon this defensive line group that we know is just such an incredible group, uh, both of veterans and young emerging talent that you guys have? Uh, he's extremely fast off the ball and extremely explosive, you know, strong, you know, good build. So I feel like he's somebody where this defense is going to serve him well. Being able to play to his strengths, uh, you know, just getting up the ball, flying around and, you know, just, just wreaking havoc. So it will be great to have someone of, of his caliber on our defense. You know, he, he 280 runs a two, I mean, a four four. So that's, that's incredible. When you get on the field and you're finally able to kind of see a mix of both the rookies now working with veterans, when you see a quarterback like Anthony Richardson, what are the things that you immediately know you're going to have to account for and what he is going to do to make your job coming off the edge so difficult? Yeah, uh, going into game weeks when we just have pocket passers, you know, the rush plan isn't as detail and, and there's not much you know that goes into it but once you get a quarterback where the whole playbook is open as far as like the core just QB runs in there QB draws when we're doing our rushes we, we got to make sure you know we got to account for all the gaps because if not this quarterback can run take up that in the field and having him to go up against and practice every day is going to prepare us this year against the Ravens, you know, against the Eagles, against a bunch of these other teams that, that we play. So um, it'll be great. And he's, he's another freak athlete that, you know, is going to be amazing to uh, compete against. Quiddy Pay, Colts defensive end, joining us here on The Fan. Quiddy, you had to power through a lot of adversity, particularly on the injury front last year. How important is it when you're starting a season to have as close to a full bill of health as possible so you're not having to to manage that right out of the gate? And, and how have you focused and tried to get your body right through that in the offseason? Yeah, uh, last year I kind of dealt with that high ankle. Um, came back a little bit too early and then re-injured it again. So this offseason, that's kind of all I really focused on, trying to get all the scar tissue up out of there. Um getting the strength back into the ankle, into the foot, and then into the calf. Um, and for me, I just, every year, every every offseason, you kind of just pick up things um, to help you perform better. So, you know, my rookie year, I kind of dealt with the soft tissue injury, so I started doing the hot yoga. And then, you know, this past year, just I couldn't really do anything about the high ankle sprain because that was somebody, you know, physically stepping on my ankle as I was turning. But, you know, I was just doing stuff to um, to make sure I'm, I'm prepared while going to games to limit my injuries because I felt as if I was going into a good year, you know, playing well, and then the injury kind of set things back, and um, I wasn't able to help this team as much as I wanted to. Quiddy, last one from me. You and I have had a lot of conversations about how you've invested time in the previous off-seasons going with DeForest Buckner and working on your technique and spending a bit of time, a significant chunk of your off-season and working with him. When you guys are released from the complex after the vet minicamp and you have some time, what is your immediate focus when you have a couple of weeks leading into training camp so that you're able to walk in and be where you want to be that uh, last week of July stepping onto the field at Grand Park? Yeah, I think for me, going into the off-seasons, I just try to be as humble as possible and um, uh, just try to be a sponge. You know, going with Buck uh, and then going with other vets that train with Buck and stuff, just being able to pick their mind about certain things because those guys have been in the league forever. They've been all pros. They've been, you know, uh, pro bowlers and stuff like that. So for me, I just want to be able to absorb as much information as I can and, um just get get into uh, this past year. I feel like I was trying to do too much as far as like learn too many rushes and whatnot. But I, you really just need a one-two, a go-to move in the counter after that, and if anything, a third move at most. So for me, just really watch all of my film, go through, uh, diagnose like all the wins, all the losses, and what works for me, and you know just things to improve on small detailing, and you know just be ready for camp. He's Colt defensive end Quiddy Pay. Quiddy, all the best to you the rest of the offseason and appreciate you making some time with us today. Yes, sir. Thank you so much for having me. 
Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. Jimmy Cook and Lara Overton here for the final time on the Fan Midday Show. We'll dive right into it. Katie Wingy of Altitude TV covers the Nuggets as a reporter, host, and analyst, nice enough to make some time with us here on The Fan. On what is an incredibly busy day for Very, her. very busy across the board uh, with the Game 2 of the Western Conference Finals. You know how much it means for Denver. Katie, how much is this chess match going to shape up in terms of the defensive game plan around Denver's Nikola Jokic here in Game 2? I think it has to be important for the Lakers to come in and try and find a way to slow Nikola Jokic down, but... Honestly, guys, good luck. It almost to try doing is just allowing Joker to get his and saying, if you're going to put up 50 on us, that's fine. We're not going to let anybody else do what they've been doing so far in this series because the Nuggets to have six players in double figures, you just everybody can hurt you in a different way. And so for Los Angeles, you saw some adjustments be made in that second half against Nikola Jokic, I have a feeling that they'll go back to some of those, maybe to start the game, maybe at different points of the game. Um, but Nikola Jokic and admire his greatness and recognize what he's capable of doing and throw a bunch of different looks at him. So a bit of backstory. I have like a fangirled over Katie from afar, followed all of her social media, followed her on Instagram, all of that. And like we'll banter and trade messages. So I hit her up. I slid in the DMs to persuade her to come on and join us. So I'm so excited that we finally get the opportunity to get to do this. And, you know, Darvin Ham joked that the only way to stop Jokic is to basically kidnap him, which was pretty well proven (laughs) in game one what is something though that allows this team to be successful and you talked about the number of players that they have and the versatility that they have but what is something that is unsung about this team this Denver team that has won allowed them to be so successful and one that people maybe don't give enough recognition to well first and foremost so great to hear your voice and meet you in a radio sense (laughs) as opposed to just on social media I was happy to jump on Glad the timing worked. Um, But, you know, I I, honestly, I really think it's the locker room. And I know that sounds kind of like a cop-out answer. It sounds like, oh, well, of course, we can't see that. And every team that's in the finals probably has a great locker room environment. But I'm going to dive a little bit deeper into that. Because what I mean is the selflessness of this Nuggets roster from top to bottom and the willingness to sacrifice and say whatever the team needs to do to win – I mean, you look at a guy like Aaron Gordon and what he was like on Orlando when he was down there and what he is now on the Denver Nuggets team. I mean, he has been called the unsung hero in a lot of ways for this Nuggets team because he's willing to go out and just be the defensive stopper. He's going to find ways to contribute in terms of scoring, and I actually think tonight's game is going to be a big AG game just based on the way that the Lakers changed some things up against Nikola Jokic. I think he might have a few more opportunities. But he doesn't care how many points he scores. And that's pretty much every player on this team is like, you know what, I could have five points one night. I could have 25 points one night. I might get three shots one night or eight shots one night. And then I might have a night where I get like 15 shots. And every player is so bought in to their role because they all collectively so badly want to bring the first championship to the Mile High City. So I think that selflessness, that willingness to just like do whatever the team needs for them to win and the culture that has been established. It is such a brotherhood. It is, it feels like I've heard a lot of the guys compare it to like a college locker room because they all genuinely care for each other and about each other. And you see that translate in the chemistry on the floor. Where's been the biggest area of growth you've seen from this team when they made the conference finals against the Lakers in the bubble a couple of years ago and and this core of, of Jamal Murray and of Nikola Jokic as they've made this ascent to not only a one seed, but like you mentioned, hoping to deliver an NBA title for the first time in franchise history. Again, it seems obvious, but it's experience. Like there is no greater teacher than experience of playing in these types of environments, playing in this situation before. And you can feel it amongst Jamal Murray, Nikola Jokic. I mean, even Michael Porter Jr. They've matured a lot over the past couple seasons. And the bubble was such a unique atmosphere the last time this team was in the Western Conference Finals against this Laker team. I'm just, one, I'm so happy for the Nuggets to be able to experience this again 
with a full arena, with everything that that entails and the atmosphere that grows from it and, and that the way that the city of Denver has kind of latched on and supported this, this group of, of guys that's trying to do something they've never done. But the way that the Nuggets have carried themselves, the quiet confidence that they have, even last after the last game, uh, one of the things that Coach Malone talked about was there was no panic at any point as the Lakers were making their run. It was all poise. And with that in mind, I think that kind of answers your question of, like, where have they grown the most? It's, it's the way they carry themselves. It's the mentality. There's no freaking out when a team makes a run. There's no, oh, I need to do this all myself. I'm going to try and take over this game and be the hero. It's just cool, calm, and collected. The relationships that have been developed because of what they've been through, the adversity that they've faced, the roles that they all have embraced, they all are just like, okay, we got this get back to playing Denver Nuggets basketball and we'll go from there. You mentioned how much this whole team has energized Denver and rallied this fan base around them. Um, count my husband among the growing fans you have in Indianapolis because he <laughs> loves to watch this team. He's like, this is like old school appreciation basketball that I have as a kid growing up in Indiana who loves this style. Katie's a fantastic totally. follow. She has all sorts of great content, Twitter and Instagram. Among those, most recently, you have your like big takeaways, the things that stood out from the post-shoot-around availability really quickly, kind of the biggest thing you heard from the guys following that shoot-around? The, the confidence of the Denver Nuggets, given they watched the film on the last game, and Coach Malone said this is probably the perfect scenario for Denver, right? Like, they still got the win in game one, so you're correcting things and talking about things after you won the game, but the Nuggets are really excited because they did not play their best game. And there are a lot of things that they feel like they can clean up and they still got the win. So I think that this reassurance that, okay, we were able to watch the film. We were able to regroup. We now know what we need to do. We now know what we can do. And you force the Lakers to play their first card in the second half. Mm -hmm. they, they ended up going a little bit smaller. You saw Rui Hachimura on Nikola Jokic and Anthony Davis kind of as that free safety. And, with that in mind, and LeBron James trying to like target Jamal Murray and pick and rolls, those are all adjustments in game that now the Nuggets forced the Lakers to make in game one, and they still won the game. So you kind of know what they're probably going to come out with. You can game plan accordingly, uh, correct your scout and change some things, maybe change up your lineups or things that you're looking for, knowing that that's what the Lakers are going to throw at you. So I think it's, it's what I've heard from practice and things like that is like, we feel very confident knowing our game plan and knowing how game one was executed. Katie, thanks so much for making time for us. Can't wait for game two. Yeah, me too. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. That's Katie Wingy with us here on The Fan. Rive JMV is next. We'll see you tomorrow. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you.